What does NPR think about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation? We'll find out. You won't be disappointed. Or you won't be disappointed in your disappointment. A radio show that confesses Christ. Without confusing the law and the gospel. A radio show that takes scripture seriously. Without taking ourselves so seriously. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. I, I like how he ran in the room thinking that you accidentally articulated baptism incorrectly. Like, <laughs> he, he, wait a minute, you're mistaken. Said to me, <laughs> said, you sound like a heretic. Right, yeah. It wasn't like, boy, they must be playing a game where they're articulating someone else's belief. It was, I think Pastor Wolfmiller is off his rocker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit disturbed that you think that I would actually teach that about baptism, Pastor <laughs> And it's so, 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 so deserved to be crunched. I mean, mega crunch. So, uh, if you guys would put the mega, mega crunch. crunch on the song, that would be awesome. <laughs> keep uh, preaching the word, pastors. Keep it mediocre. Mediocre and hilarious. Well, there's nothing else to do. This is Table Talk Radio. And take a look at some emails. What are you talking buzzers. about? I got a long list of things I can do. You do? Then why aren't you doing them? <laughs> <laughs> I always thought, you know, us doing Table Talk Radio is like the thing that procrastinators do to avoid doing real things. Like, I really need to clean up the garage. I'll just listen to some Table Talk Radio. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I know. I really need to clip my toenails. I mean, nobody gets up in the morning and goes, man, I really need to listen to some Table Talk Radio. It's the other way around. It's... I really got to get some things done that I really would hate to do. I'll just listen to some Table Talk Radio instead. <laughs> it's like... yeah, by the way, nobody also gets up in the morning and says, man, I really need to record Table Talk Radio today. Definitely Just not. if anybody was wondering. Nope. But we do it uh, as a procrastination service for you, the listener. And uh, Pastor Wolfman has been working on a lineup today. I don't even know what he's doing over there. He's like, I, I look over. I, I like tie my shoe and come up and there's a whole show plan i'm like ah oh <laughs> it's a, that's right a show prep. we're not messing around oh, scared me <laughs> <laughs> look at this email it's signed in in uh swahili or something did you see that the f- yeah one? yeah you it's not it's not in english I don't even know who this is from. It's in a foreign language. We got an email, and then we got NPR on the Reformation, and then we got some uh, in, in, stuff on how to get an indulgence. I think that'll probably do it. And then we, if we run out of that stuff, we have some praise songs to crunch. This is going to be great. All right. We'll go to Tribe. But first, let's do some buzzwords. I got a buzzword for you, Pastor Wolfmuller. This comes from the archive okay. section of Issues, etc. It says your theological buzzword is Reconstructionism. And I never knew this as a definition. It says the post-millennial teaching that the church, by the preaching of the gospel, will be enabled to reconstruct the culture around biblical laws. Do we find post-millennials anywhere? Like the only place I like, I think there's a little exhibit at the zoo under in the extinct animal section. It's like <laughs> the last three surviving post-millennials are hanging around. <laughs> there's two or three at the zoo. 
Weird. My buzzword for you is saint. By the way, saint. This was All Saints Day a couple days back, November 1st. That's the day where we remember the dearly departed. But you know what a saint is in the Bible is someone who's holy by the forgiveness of sins. This got all twisted around in the Middle Ages in Catholic theology where saint became the person who had filled up their obedience by doing meritorious good works. But, you know, when Paul writes to Corinth, he says, to the saints of God in Corinth, and that doesn't mean to the perfect ones in Corinth, it means to the baptized. So... All the Lord's people are his saints. Ah, very nice. Well, I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, uh, if you have these uh, years in purgatory that you have to be spent, I mean, you can't really have a saint who's in purgatory because they have to have this surplus of good works. So now you have to have this criteria of deeming who a saint is, perform two miracles and and uh, all these other things. So, um Ooh, that's crazy. Meanwhile, uh, St. Paul's saying, hey, if you believe in Jesus, you're a saint. Here's an email. You ready? Yep. I was. I really don't know who this is from because it's in Chinese letters. How do you pronounce? Do you know how to pronounce the Chinese? I wonder if Google can pronounce the Chinese. <laughs> Good luck. Email says, I was listening to Kramer Chapel this morning. This is September 25th, and I suddenly heard an Australian accent that sounded just like Pastor Wolfmuller. <laughs> Answer is no. Probably, I, I would not be surprised if it was one of the professors who was um, copying my Australian accent because <laughs> it's just it's a scientifically proven fact that Australian sounds more orthodox than American. It's not scientific. You could say something in American, and you're like, oh, I'm not sure if that's true. You say the same thing in Australian, and it just sounds as orthodox as could be. <laughs> I like how... how about, I'll try. You want to try an experiment? I'll just try. I'll, say, I'll first say something in American, and then I'll say it in Australian. Tell me which sounds more orthodox. Okay. okay first, praise songs are mystical. Mm. That's um, American. Mm. Now in Australian. The praise songs, well, they're all mystical. Well, that's true. Yeah. You got a point. Do you there. see how do you see how that sounds? <laughs> that's I'm the most ridiculous you. thing I've ever heard. I think I like the idea though of you going to Now watch, you just said that, but let me let me say that same thing with an Australian accent and people will believe it. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> you see even how much more believable you sound when translated into Australian? Doesn't work. I, I like the idea of you going Table to Talk Kramer Radio Chapel. is one of the best radio shows out there. I don't know You'll how often. You love Table Talk Radio. I don't know how often you get to preach in Kramer Chapel, but the next time you do, I think you ought to preach in Australian accent and see how it goes. <laughs> Good eye, mates. Today's text for all consideration is the transfiguration of Jesus. He lights up like a bushfire. That'd be awesome. Uh, I don't know. All right, let's uh, let's listen to a little NPR, shall we? I mean, oh, yeah. that's what I want to do. Everybody knows the highly uh, conservative NPR is uh, worth uh, listening. And here's a little story on the Reformation. I'll just, let me know if you need, you need me to pause it. 
Today we note that a rebellious act by a single German monk 500 years ago set the stage for centuries of violent religious conflict. It also introduced oh a new era of free thinking. The half of the U.S. population... <laughs> Wait, hold, themselves- on, hold on, hold on. So we have the summary statement, which they managed to, I think, what, to put in about 14 errors into less than that <laughs> words. Well, I think I'm, like he probably spoke... 20 things that were wrong, and he only took 10 words to do it. That's an amazing <laughs> sort of thing. So I like how the Reformation sets the stage for, what do you say, violence or something like that? Uh, as if things yeah. were just peace and loving up until the nailing of the 95 Theses. Like, no one was being burned at the stake <laughs> yeah, before like this. Woodstock. That's right. <laughs> they, people didn't even have swords before the Luther came along. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then, uh, it's an act of rebellion. That's the first error. One rebellious monk. You see how they have a, like a pseudo Australian accent? Maybe that's a what we call pseudo Australian. <laughs> One rebellious monk made a way for centuries of bloodshed and also free thinking. Uh, kudos to you for cutting through the accent and actually listening to the content, though. I mean, because it's easy to be swayed. I mean, I was, I was the first time I listened to this. I was just taken away. This guy knows what he's talking about. But thanks to you, yeah, you were able British. to point it out. Right. Yeah. I'm impervious to it. The, <laughs> the trick. I, this is a, so. Someone sent us, by the way. Uh, they said that we would enjoy analyzing this NPR report. I'm not sure. So that's far, the, the right enjoyment's adjective. pretty low. Okay, let's let him get into it a little, I suppose. Protestant, trace that heritage to Martin Luther. His protest against corruption in the Roman Catholic Church sparked what became known as the Reformation. Here's NPR's Tom Jelton. For most of the last 500 years, October 31st has been a day when Catholics and Lutherans remember why they split. Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, dared to challenge his church's beliefs and practices, none more odious than its claim that sinners could buy God's forgiveness by purchasing an indulgence. Lutherans have since been raised on the story of Luther's defiant preaching, as in this 1953 movie. My beloved... You cannot buy God's mercy. Amen. Legend has it that on October 31st... <laughs> a really 15... short sermon. Uh, yeah, it was... <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think the rest of that sermon made it to the cutting room floor as <laughs> to where that is. Beloved, you cannot buy... <laughs> Any questions? Amen. <laughs> Amen. Amen. All right, here's oh, a little boy. bit more before we need to take a break. 17, Luther nailed a list of his grievances to the door of his hometown church. This is what a hammer sounds like. A nice theatrical touch reenacted in that classic Luther movie. Actually, we don't know that Luther really did that, only that he mailed the list that day to his local archbishop. All right, uh, this this has been something that creeps up from time to time, you know, whether or not historically Luther actually nailed the 95 Theses to the church door. Um, I, I tend to think that he did, but do you have any thoughts on that, Pastor Wolf? You were in Germany. Yeah, there's a, uh, yeah they, I think he did. There's this kind of, I don't know, it's one of the marks of this kind of intellectual approach to history is that you try, you're trying to demystify things, but I, I think it seems like more often than not the myths are there for a reason. And in this most recent book, Brand Luther, 
he kind of rediscovers that, in fact, they were publishing these things to be posted publicly like that. So All right. I'm going with the nail in the door. We'll do it. We'll be right back. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. felt like you were all alone in the world you were probably listening to table talk radio the daily bible meditation blog is at rightly divided bible.wordpress.com where three chapters of the bible are considered each day check it out one segment in the can where it belongs Well, I don't know if it was in the door or not, but uh, I think the point is is that there was something that was worth talking about. But I tend to think that it was um, on the door. I mean, we always have uh, October 31st as the Reformation Day because that was the day Luther went to the post office and mailed the 95 Theses. Uh, but, but I think there was a point to that, that um, you know, All Saints Day, November 1st, I think people were coming down to the church on All Saints Day, so was uh, posting on a day that uh, people would, would be seeing it. That, that was always my thought on it. Well, yeah, remember it's on November the 1st that um, Frederick the Wise, who had the second largest indulgence or uh, relic collection in the world, like at this time, at 1517, I think he had over 17,000 uh, relics, which if you went and did uh, devotion at each one of them would get you like 1,900,000 years out of purgatory. He would put those relics on display in the castle church on November the 1st for everyone to come and see them. Uh, there it is. So if you wanted to post something for people to see, that's where you'd put it, on the door of the castle church. And uh, and by the way, these were not... Um, Luther wrote these theses as, a, as part of a disputation. It was an official sort of thing that they would do once or twice a year where a professor would write theses, and then the students would be picked one side and another, and they would debate them. In a public debate, where another professor would in fact judge which side won, so it wasn't like um, this was a weird thing to do. Luther, I think, had written the ninety-nine theses the year before, and they would write theses the next year. He'd write the Heidelberg theses. He he would write theses into the fifteen thirties, and even before he died in the forties, he was writing these theses for public dispute. So this was not an act of rebellion. It was an it was an act. Of, it was an academic exercise. Um, now Luther's getting after this bad practice of selling indulgences. Um, that's true. So, so he, I suppose he, he struck a chord a little bit, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. But it's not. It's not like there was nobody protesting indulgences. I mean, there, um, you know, there's a lot of people that were uh, saying these things that were going on were abusive. Even Erasmus could kind of protest all these abuses of the Catholic Church. So it's not like Luther was, um, the only person in the world to do this. Although it is true that he writes, when he writes later about this, he says, I, I, it seemed to me like I was standing all alone in the world. Uh, so, but uh, in fact, he wasn't. There was other people who were seeing the same problems and criticizing the church in the same way. All right, more from this story from NPR. By so doing, he challenged the Pope himself and the secular rulers allied with him. In the years that followed, Luther's Reformation brought religious and political freedoms to Europe. It also triggered persecution and war. On this anniversary, the Augustinian order to which Luther once belonged noted in a statement that the damage he did to monastic life in Germany was enormous. 
but Lutherans and Catholics today are closer well, than they've three. ever been. I'm just going to pause oh, right my there. Goodness. <laughs> oh. So uh, today, Lutherans and Catholics are closer than they've ever been before. On what? All right, well, let's listen. Let's, let's hear what he says. Dear sisters and brothers in Christ, together, let us confess our faith. The anniversary year began with an ecumenical service in Sweden. It was led by Pope Francis himself, along with the head of the Lutheran World Federation, representing more than 70 million Lutherans across the globe. There it is. In ecumenicism, which, you know, um, takes our theological differences and says, let's all agree on doctrine. That's what ecumenicism is, isn't it? Oh, no, no, the other way around. Let's just ignore them. <laughs> yeah, there's different ways of being close, I suppose. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, we're closest, closer than we've ever been before because we don't talk about anything that we believe. <laughs> you remember that one time when, um, when Hillary Clinton and uh, Trump were standing on the stage? They were re- uh, in the debate. They were really close that day. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, there's a, one one person's close is not another kind of close. So let's let's if we okay, let's make the let's say let's just pretend for a little bit. Let's go to our kind of pretend place, our imaginary world, and act like the Reformation was about theology just for a minute. You know, I mean, let's suspend our credulity, our, you know, our secret insider knowledge. Let's suspend our gro- and go back to fairy tale land where it was an actual fight about doctrine, okay? And then let's ask ourselves, has the Catholic Church changed any doctrine? Has the Lutheran Church changed any doctrine since the Reformation? Does the Catholic Church still confess Trent in which they said Lutherans be damned to hell? Hmm? Uh, have the Lutherans rescinded their statements that say the Pope is the Antichrist? Uh, has the theology changed at all? No. So if that's the case, if the theology hasn't changed, I mean, let me, a little caveat there in the midst of my obnoxiousness, and that is to say that the Catholic Church, the doctrine has changed, in fact, because one of the marks of the Catholic doctrine is it always has to change. That's how you keep the authority of the Church. Yeah, did so you Catholic, see? Even though they... Did you see that, that recently yeah. uh, Pope Francis uh, has declared... Did we talk about this already? That the um, that capital punishment is inadmissible in all circumstances, which is interesting because there you have the vicar of Christ who speaks infallibly ex cathedra, and yet previous popes like Pope John Paul II who put together the Catechism, saying that uh, that uh, capital punishment is um, admissible in circumstances in which the government is lawfully. Uh, punishing the wicked. Now, the irony of that whole thing was that Pope Francis made that announcement at the 25th anniversary celebration of that catechism. <laughs> Oops. Not much fun for so, subtlety. So my guy. question is, I, you know, which, but which infallible... Change. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, which infallible Pope was wrong there? The Pope... See, the Pope has to change doctrine, even though they'll, now it's... Uh, pain for all the theologians because they got to go back and argue how they didn't really change the doctrine but they the pope in some ways has to change the doctrine to keep his own authority i mean if the pope is always just saying the same thing that the bible said <laughs> That's smart. so the growth of dogma is part of the catholic doctrine 
But even if doctrine is changing since the Reformation, it's not like the Catholic doctrine is getting better. It's getting worse. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not like they've undone the selling of indulgences. They've doubled down on it. You can get indulgences for all sorts of things. It's not like they've, they've repudiated the kind of uh, Mary worship. They've doubled down on their Mary theology, and, and they're just about ready to call Mary the co-redeemer, a blasphemous phrase. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not like the Catholic Church has gotten has gotten better since the Reformation. It's gotten worse. So, in our pretend world where the Reformation is about theology, there's no way that the Catholics and the Lutherans are closer to one another theologically. They're farther apart than we ever were, even at the time of Martin Luther. Now, here's the problem, or the way to get around it, I suppose, if you want to, uh, is to say that the Reformation wasn't about theology, or to say that the Church now is not about theology which is a great way to define the Lutheran World Federation. <laughs> I mean, that, if you say, hey, what's the Lutheran World Federation about? The answer is not theology. I mean, this is just, who knows what they are about? That changes, you know. Probably they're after some sort of transgender rights or who, who knows what, they, I mean, like, uh, uh, I don't know, racism in Antarctica or something. Who, who, I mean, it's always, <laughs> but we know the one consistent thing that they're, that they're, uh, that they're, that, uh, that, that marks the Lutheran World Federation is that they don't care about doctrine. So that's the way to get close is to say that the thing that, that separates us is not theological stuff, but other stuff. And then you can grow closer and have an ecumenical service. Have we have we listened to the sermon preached at that ecumenical service? We should do that someday on this radio show that we have. Okay. You want to take care of that show prep for me? Okay. All right. Here's some more. In Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Catholic and Lutheran leaders now agree, as Luther argued, that it's one's faith that gets you to heaven. And that meant... Hold on. Before we listen to the gentleman who speaks... Uh, did uh okay so lutherans and catholics now agree that it is faith that gets you to heaven did the catholic ever oppose the idea that it was faith that gets you to heaven well no uh i mean remember i mean i don't think it's so important to remember i mean maybe in practice you could just buy buy you know pay for a plenary indulgence but um at least in in teaching it was always that faith was a component of salvation. I mean, it wasn't right. completely divorced. I mean, it's not like um, they're telling you uh, only by by works you're saved. It's it's faith plus works. So to say, yeah, I mean, faith formed in love is how the Catholic Church said. It. Faith formed in love. So it wasn't the, the the Catholic Church was never against faith or grace or Scripture. It was the thing that offended them is when the Lutherans started talking in exclusive terms. It's faith only. Uh, faith apart from love, grace apart from works, scripture apart from tradition and the, and the Pope. It's the onlys that got people in trouble. So if the Lutherans concede the onlys, then we could agree theologically with the Catholics. But the point is, that's it. That's the, the only thing the Lutherans have is the onlys. That's the, the thing that makes the difference. I mean, th th this was the problem, and I, I can't pretend to be a, an expert have, having studied real closely the, the Joint Declaration on, on Justification but that document that what 15 years ago Catholics and some Lutherans signed um that that basically talked about salvation and faith in very vague terms and and just like it was worded there that it is faith that gets you to heaven 
Well, of course it is. No one ever disputed that. The question is, is it faith alone that we're justified before God? And uh, that right. is why, um, you know, Missouri Synod theologians at least couldn't couldn't sign that joint declaration on justification because it, it didn't yep. say enough. It didn't yep. it didn't actually yep. put forward these truths. So, well, there's more on this NPR story on the Reformation after this break. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. Give us a call one eight hundred three eight five SOLA one eight hundred three eight five seven six five two. We'll be right back. really one of the best decisions you've made today. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. I save all the good stuff for grappling with the text, a little video Bible study that you could find at worldvieweverlasting.com. Catholic and Lutheran leaders now agree, as Luther argued, that it's one's faith that gets you to heaven. And that meant an emphasis on scripture. John Borelli, a Catholic scholar at Georgetown University, says church leaders in Rome began to acknowledge Luther's argument during the Vatican II Council in the 1960s. It took us only 450 years to see Luther's point, and in many ways, Vatican II was Luther's council. Well done, Luther. <laughs> yeah, you know, like at Vatican II when they announced that uh, they're going to accept the Book of Concord as the confession of the Church. That's what happened at Vatican II, isn't it? Vatican II when they said that people can be believers in Christ and not know that they're believers? Oh, that one. I was mistaken. Yeah, Luther's Council. Vatican II where they doubled down on the authority of the Pope. Remember that? <laughs> where they... Uh, messed around with the lectionary <laughs> and then all the Lutheran churches adopted it. Maybe that's why. All the Lutherans are much smarter than we were. They're like, man, this Vatican II stuff sounds really Lutheran. <laughs> the Vatican II remember is Lutheran. Remember council. my guy, um, Father Angel, my uh, buddy, um, who he, he loved Vatican II. He's he was spending his whole life trying to trying to make Vatican II match with um, Pope Benedict. That was he, he was just kind of working on that pretty hard. And uh, what he would always brag about Vatican II about how it had no anathemas. You know, that's the big triumph. No no anathemas, no judgment. Hmm. Yeah. I guess in some ways the Vatican II condemn anybody. So, I mean, it's not like they went back and said, "Oh yeah, I remember how we." I suppose the Edict of Worms, in which the Catholic Church declares Luther to be an outlaw and his books to be burned, is still in effect. Has that been rescinded since the diet, it was put in place by the Diet of Spire in 1529? I think it still, I think it still exists. Hmm. Huh. I'm not sure. Uh, okay, here's some I'll more from, from NPR. 
That point, theologians call it justification by faith, is just one of the examples where Lutherans and Catholics have come together. Elizabeth Eaton is the presiding bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the largest of the Lutheran denominations. That's a huge change if you think about 500 years ago we were killing each other over some of these issues. Catholics have also accepted other Lutheran positions, for example, that people should be able to worship and read the Bible in their own language. But Eaton says Lutherans shouldn't feel too triumphalist. We've had to say that breaking up the the Western Church was not a gift to the Church. So we've acknowledged some of the critiques that the Roman Catholic Church has had against the Lutheran movement. Ah, the Lutheran movement. Oh, for heaven's (laughs) sakes. It's like, back 500 years ago, we were killing ourselves over doctrine. We are so much better now, because now we just don't even care. (laughs) I would like to say... That both murdering people because of false doctrine but and also not caring about false doctrine are neither one of those is a is a position in which we should boast. Can I be that bold? I mean, it's true that people should not be coerced uh, uh, re- religiously. They should not be uh, killed and uh, for blasphemy laws like the world wants to do now, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody, we got to... That's the thing that we got to worry about is you and I on the radio that we say some sort of blasphemy against the thing that's accepted to say in public nowadays, and then you got to get killed for it. But anyhow, uh, I'm against the blasphemy laws. Like that, we've we've arrived at some sort of like evolution has advanced us past the past the dark ages of caring about what's true. I mean that is uh, that is an ugly assertion to make, uh, and and really. Ah, that's that's ugly. I wish. I mean, why why is Bishop Eaton the one that's speaking on behalf of the Lutherans? Because she is a, a what lead bishop of the largest Lutheran church body in America. It, Lutheran with air quotes around it. <laughs> uh, what I got what, bishop the, the, with the, air quotes around it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the the sense I got from that little exchange was, you know, how when someone says sorry. And you don't really feel like you've done anything wrong, but you say sorry too because it seems rude if you're not joining in on the sorries. It's like, oh, the, the the Catholics came around and said that we should have church in the vernacular. And then uh, uh, Eden's like, yeah, we're sorry too. We split the church. We, I mean, we shouldn't be happy about splitting the Western church. We we accept some of the critiques that the Catholic church has brought to us. We shouldn't have split up over this whole thing. I'm sorry. Are you kidding? I think I don't think she's saying that accidentally. I think she's I think her identity is wrapped up in that apology. I mean, this is part of the whole liberal guilt. You well, know? I wasn't White. saying that it was insincere. I was just saying that she has to find something to apologize for. And the thing that she finds something to apologize for is sorry we split up the Western Church. <laughs> oh man, I I'll bet you that if you sat down with her and you asked her of all the things she's ashamed of in the Lutheran tradition, her list would be longer than the Book of Concord. I bet she has more things that she's ashamed of that Luther said and that Luther did and that the Lutherans talked about than she does that she can actually be proud of. Are, are, oh, my goodness. She, because and, and this is the thing. The thing that's leveled against the Lutherans all the time is like there was one big united church, all one. You know, it's like it was it's like it's a small world ride was how the Catholic Church was before Luther came around. <laughs> and then all of a sudden. 
Protestant churches, but there's still this one big monolithic Catholic church. This is not true. It's never been true, and it still is not true. There is more uh, variety in theology in the Catholic church than there is in the Protestant church. At least there's equal amount of variety, if not more, because there's kind of more dogmas that the Pope invented for people to disagree on. The only thing that, that, that unites the Catholic Church is a submission to the Pope. That's it. But you find Catholics that are Pentecostals and the Catholics that are not. You find Catholics that believe the Bible's God's Word. You have Catholics that are just radical liberal. In fact, most of them are, are higher critics. You have Catholics who believe this about the Atonement or that, this about Jesus and that. You have all sorts of Catholics divided over all sorts of things. It's not that it's this kind of great monolith and that outside the Catholic Church it's divided into all of these tens of thousands of, of uh, unholy um, uh, cults gathered around personalities is simply a false view of, of what's true. Um, yeah, good stuff. Here's some more from NPR. Indeed, the Catholic Lutheran reconciliation that has taken place in recent years involves apologies on both sides. Bishop Dennis Madden of Baltimore, who leads the ecumenical movement on the Catholic side, says his church has to take some responsibility for the rupture of the Christian world. Catholics should do penance for setting the stage for that. It was not out of the blue that that happened. The society, the church, the way things were being done at that time called for reform. Many issues still divide Catholics and Lutherans, whether women can be ordained, for example, or whether same-sex marriages should be allowed. But the churches oh my are goodness. moving... <laughs> hold on, hold on, wait a minute. Those are like the only two things that you and I would actually agree with the Catholic Church on. <laughs> I know. That's unbelievable. What a crazy turn. Like, the... so, but yeah, so I like this. So, so the NPR is trying to say... Uh, hey, look, the, you know these Lutherans—they they fixed up the Catholic Church. They, I mean, the, the the Catholic Church is finally coming around to all of the things that the reformers talked about, except, um, you know, women in ministry and whether uh, gays can be married. I mean, boy, you, you think uh, you think NPR's leftist is kind of coming through in the report a little bit? I mean, good. Well, you know, I mean, Luther was a big fan of women's ordination and gay marriage, so. <laughs> Obviously. That is the heritage of the Reformation. I mean, that was Did like. You, you know, our friend uh, Todd Wilkin on the other radio show interviewed Bishop Eaton, and he asked her about that. What would the Reformers think about the ordination of women, and what would the Reformers think about about gay marriage? And she said, I don't know. <laughs> Ooh. I <laughs> such a ridiculous thing to say i don't know like it's some big secret i oh, oh. luther didn't have much to say about sexual sins did he <laughs> i know but if he was alive today you know yeah yeah he, right that's like that's always the claim now what i what i found in interesting was um uh about that interview i didn't catch all of it but um Wilkin posed your question to her, the, the, the thing about, uh, you know, racism uh, or what's your thing about the, the morality shifts from culture to culture. So I think they were talking about the Lutheran Church in Ethiopia, and she talks about, you know, their context. So morality apparently changes on the basis of context. So the Lutheran Church in Ethiopia can have one uh, morality based upon their context but we won't judge them because they're not where we are in our context. 
Uh, I didn't. Um, I didn't tell them to ask that question. I, but I think it's you know, it's there's this institutional racism. So you sort of see what tenderizes a person's conscience by the thing that they're obsessed with, and that is one of them. And and it just turns out that when, you know, it turns out that uh, poor ethnic cultures have a more traditional morality, and so the, the, uh, so enlightenment uh, apparently comes with riches. And that has to be the worldview that the ELCA b- uh, believes. It's 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 retrograde. It's 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 disgusting. But they can't escape the conclusion. All right, we got just ten more seconds of this, but it's a ten seconds you're not going to want to miss. We'll be right back on Table Talk Radio. Busting the myth that practice makes perfect. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. Hi, this is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. I know that when you tune in the radio to listen to your favorite Lutheran, conservative, confessional radio show with a game show theme, that you have a lot of choices. So I'd like to thank you for listening to Table Talk Radio. And as a show of our appreciation, I'd like to give you the opportunity to help the show by donating now. So click the Donate Now button at tabletalkradio.org. Thanks for your help. I'm reading Luther's sermons from the House Postal every week. You can find it at www.hope-aurora.org. Click on the Luther Sermon Podcast. Listening to a piece on the Reformation from NPR, so far they've got nothing right, but let's see if the last 10 seconds changes everything. That maybe in the last 10 seconds they'll finally uh, be able to correctly articulate the truth of the Reformation as we know it 5,000 or 5,000, 500 years ago. You ready? Ready. Closer on one core question whether they can celebrate communion together a goal for some future Reformation anniversary. Tom Jelton, NPR News. So we're closer to celebrating communion together. I mean, what? Uh, I mean that, that does seem oh. odd, doesn't it? That um, Lutherans and Catholics are not communing together if, in fact, we have come together on all these issues. I mean, if if... You didn't know anything else about theology and just heard it from the NPR piece. Uh, you'd be like, man, they're together on pretty much everything except for women in ministry and uh, whether gays can marry. So why aren't they commuting together again? I mean, if, if doctrine doesn't matter, commune together. What's wrong with you guys? Um, let's, let's just play this out. Let's just, uh, <laughs> let's have a couple scenarios, okay? Let's just pretend like there's a Catholic family— and they go and visit an ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church. That's really who this is going on here. They go visit an ELCA church on Sunday morning. Can they take communion there? Sure. Why not? I mean, their dog could take and, communion there. And let's do it the other way. Let's say a member of the ELCA would go to the Catholic Church on Sunday morning and go to Mass. Could they take communion there? I don't know. The answer no. The answer is no. So let's see who's given way on this whole thing. Let's see 
you know, the, the part of the thing of the uh, whole uh, thing is like the Catholics have decided, oh, yeah, the Lutherans weren't so wrong after all. But how, how much has that gone towards, uh, you know, how much have they actually given way? And, and when you listen to the guys, the Catholic guys that are really actually trying to Catholic answers, guys, they do not say that Luther was victorious. They say that Luther was a demon possessed pervert. You know, I mean, that's the kind of uh, that's the uh, when you're in over there with the with the Luther, with the Catholics, that is their um, take on Luther. They, they make no bones about it. It's not a hidden agenda either. It's pretty nasty stuff. Hmm. All right. Yeah. So as as uh, you pointed out, the irony that we have the Council of Trent, which says anyone who believes that they are justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law, let them be anathema. But then you have the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which says um, those Muslims and Jews who seek after God with their best intentions uh, are uh, or can be saved. So I don't know. I mean, if you are a Lutheran, you're condemned. If you're a Muslim, you're a okay. <laughs> let's let's also point this out, and that is that um, the the proper way to do theology is if you know that there's a disagreement, that you you clarify the points so that you get to the disagreement. Mm. There was it was something nice when the old Lutherans and the Catholics kind of had that understanding of doing theology, so you could actually get to the point. But now the way do you do theology apparently is the opposite: is you just try to obscure things so that you can't tell there's any disagreements, hmm. and it's and it it doesn't help anybody to do theology that way. I mean, you know, if you and I disagreed about something, we could finally push back, back, back to where we had something that we agreed on, and then say, ah, now we agree. But the point is, you don't get to the point of disagreement. You know, mm -hmm. you don't you, you don't get to the place where you're actually being separate, where the devil has done his work to separate the Christians so that they are not of one mind. And if we don't do the hard work of clearly articulating our theology and 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 expecting that same clear articulation from the people that we disagree with, then we're then we're not, we're not going to be closer to agreeing here. here I'll, I'll say this, I think, as clearly as I can in the whole ecumenical movement. The result has been that the churches are now farther apart than they've ever been. They might be having services together and being communing together and everything else, but they are deceived to think that there's more points of agreement than there actually are. So when they, when the Lutherans and the Catholics think that they agree on faith, it just all it means is that neither side understands what the what the scriptures or what their doctrine it means when they say the word faith. It's really a mess. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, let's move on to the next. Uh, agenda item, which is an email. Do you want to go and read that email for us? Yeah. I'm pulling up the article. The email says, hey, TT, uh, let's see. Uh, Dear Pastors, better hurry. Only one month left to get your Fatima anniversary indulgence. The third quote way made me snort out loud. Utterly preposterous. Hope you can use this nonsense for your mediocre hilarity. Uh, oops, I dropped it there. Who is this from? Uh, this is from Veronica from Fort Wayne. Uh, so here you have the article there. Yeah, let me pull it up here. Uh, let's see. Number one, make a pil pilgrimage to the shrine. The first way for the faithful to get an indulgence is to make a pilgrimage to the Fatima shrine in Portugal and participate in celebration or prayer dedicated to the Virgin. What's in addition, the, the faithful must pray the Our Father, recite the Creed, and invoke the Mother of God. This is. Okay. Uh, we should put this. Uh, I, we might have to retract all the things where we said that the Catholic Church hadn't been getting better. I mean, look at this. 
This is a severe improvement from the time of the Reformation. (laughs) Number two, pray before any statue of Our Lady of Fatima. Any statue anywhere. The second way applies to the, quote, pious faithful who visit with devotion a statue of Our Lady of Fatima, solemnly exposed for public veneration in any church, oratory, or proper place during the days of the anniversary of the apparitions, the 13th of each month from May to October 2017, and there devoutly participate in some celebration or prayer in honor of the Virgin Mary. And then the snort-worthy number three, the elderly and infirm. (laughs) (laughs) The third way to obtain a plenary indulgence applies to people who, because of age, illness, or other serious cause, are unable to get around. These individuals can pray in front of a statue of Our Lady of Fatima and must spiritually unite themselves to the Jubilee celebrations on the days of the apparitions, the 13th of each month between May and October 2017. They also must offer to merciful God with confidence through Mary their prayers and sufferings or the sacrifice or the sacrifices they make in their own lives. So kind of like a Calvinistic communion, they're just spiritually uniting themselves to the to the statue if they can't actually be there. This is a great way. I wonder if the Pope mentioned this when he got together with the Lutherans in Sweden. He says, by the way, you guys want some indulgences? You can go down to the Fatima statue, say in our father, get a plenary indulgence. Good heaven. What but, a joke. But, you know, as our previous NPRP said, the Lutherans and Catholics can pretty much agree on things now. So this is the point. Is we, you know, we have this idea of this kind of snarly, immoral popes of the Reformation, and then now we have these, you know, the nice popes in their, in their golf carts and the red shoes, and they're kind, and they visit the poor and everything. The bulletproof See, look how much carts. better they are. <laughs> what is it? The bulletproof, bulletproof golf, golf carts. Cart. I mean, why not? Um, this, yeah, I mean... It's the best way to go. I mean, yeah, I mean, especially the, the, the pope we have now who is anti-death penalty, who is you know, rebuking priests for their racism or whatever he's doing. I don't know. Um, but here you go. I mean, again, uh, let's just go get an indulgence. Let's earn our standing before God. Let's, let's do it by performing. And, uh, you know, those who think that we've, you know, come a long way since the reformation, there's really theologically, doctrinally speaking, no different. I mean, nothing has changed. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. It's just, it's gotten worse. Why can't we see that? It's gotten worse. So this is the thing that, I mean, this is one of the reasons why the Lutheran Reformation went. And the other, you know, the pre-Lutheran Reformations, and even the post-Lutheran kind of Catholic Reformation did not. Because um, because they could not think of things in terms of theology, but only in terms of morality. So, you know, Erasmus was a great critic of the Pope, but he criticized the Pope's morals, or immorals, I suppose. Uh, and now this is how we judge things. We judge things on the morality of a thing or on the immorality of a thing. But the, the thing, the getting the goose around the neck, is looking at the theology, looking at the teaching, looking at the doctrine. That's where we have to look. And when we look there... And the Catholic Church, we see that it hasn't changed a bit. They're still selling the indulgences. You know, you gotta if you're too, if you're in a wheelchair, you're in the nursing home. You unite yourself spiritually with the people going on pilgrimage to Fatima, and you get a plenary indulgence if you don't forget to say the Our Father. I mean, that is just disastrous. 
Oh, man. Hmm. And you can say that, by the way. You can say that all these things are good, uh, but but they don't, uh, and, and that they have to do with faith. But again, it's the faith alone that stands in the way of all this nonsense. You, that you cannot hold to faith alone and have this kind of superstitious uh, uh, Christian-painted paganism uh, uh, holding together with with a confession of the true faith, faith uh, that, that faith alone justifies. And par- and part of us might think, boy, uh, doing this deed, going to Portugal and and saying the Our Father has a statue, that's such a easy thing to do, so therefore I can have assurance of salvation. But in fact, these things rob assurance of salvation because when you leave the work for us to do, there is no comfort. And that's going to be all the time we have for this edition of Table Talk Radio. Where the points are like the plenary indulgences from your spiritual unity with Fatima Lady statues. <laughs> Fatima Lady. Where the points are going to be like the confidence you get to in this the Lutheran Church when you hear Radio. Bishop Eden talk Table Talk Radio is not for everyone. Please consult your pastor before listening points are to like Table the Talk Radio. Games of the ecumenical may include nausea, vomiting, headache, heartburn, hair loss, hallucinations. The points are like the, 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 the grade I would give to the NPR reporter if he was taking my Lutheran church history. A sudden craving to smell your backseat, claustrophobia, an uncontrollable urge to fight the capitalists on Twitter, and falling off your trip. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org. 